is Nobius Job Search Advice Radio, episode 2246. I'm Jeff Alvin, the Big Game Hunter, and welcome. Today's show is an interview I did with Scott Singer about finding a job as a new arrival to the U.S. And to be clear, we're not talking about people who've crossed the southern border and illegal immigration. What we're talking about is people who have come here uh, legally and have the documentation to find work, yada, yada, yada. Hope you enjoy the show. Hope you give it an honest review wherever you listen to it. And we'll be back in just one moment. Support for today's show comes from Ed Eureka. Ed Eureka is a service where for those of you who work in technology, you already know you've got to keep your skills up to speed or else you're going to be washed out at some time. So I'll simply say Edgerica makes it inexpensive and effective for you to learn what you need to learn in order to stay current in your field or to learn skills in order to transfer to something completely different. Follow the link in the show notes. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And we'll be back in just one moment. So my guest today is Scott Singer. Scott is founder and president of Insider Career Strategies, LLC, And what he does is guide individuals and corporate clients through the job search and hiring process, consult on resume writing and interview coaching. He helps develop LinkedIn profiles and helps professionals manage their image. Ooh, image. (laughs) He also does outplacement services and brings a unique insight into what employers want and need in the world of talent. And he's a member of the Forbes Coaches Council. I was a member of that for many years. And Scott, welcome. Great Thank to have you. you on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And folks, we're going to do a topic today that no one does. And it's a great one. So I'll just simply say, if you're in a situation where you're looking for work, you know it's not exactly a picnic, right, folks? And you're the Americans. You know, you're the native-born individuals, and you struggle. You can only imagine what it's like for those who are outside the U.S. Scott, what is it like for those uh, who come to the U.S. and look for work? I can only imagine it's a lot harder. It's it's complicated. I think that's probably the best uh, the best way to put it. I think that uh, as you said, I mean, even folks that are you know American citizens or permanent residents or, or other work authorized you know folks that are from here realize there's a lot of steps that employers put in place to make it difficult and challenging in terms of searching for a job. But I think that um, you know international folks they they have cultural barriers. They have um, you know in terms of you know convincing employers that you know somebody who comes in a little bit different is is going to be okay and going to augment and not take away from their team. Also, I think there are legal challenges, uh, you know, visas and and work authorization. Um, you know, and then of course there's language issues, you know, in terms of help, you know, how people navigate that. Um, you know, the, I'm sure you're aware and, you know, the, your years of experience that business has a language of its own and being able to kind of speak the way that, a, that American business talks. So yeah, there's definitely some hurdles to overcome. And there are idiomatic expressions that exist elsewhere that, and there are idiomatic expressions that exist in the U.S., that cause communications, I don't want to call it friction, but lack of understanding. And, and I know in one culture, the expression, do the needful, uh, is 
Um, one of those classic expressions that people in that culture would understand, but in the U.S., it becomes something that people look at quizzically, like, yeah. oh, needful, required, got it, and the translation has to go on. But it's so, also, it goes beyond that, too. It's also approach. Um, you know, we Americans tend to be very direct. You know, we ask a question, we expect an answer. Um, and, you know, there are some cultures, particularly some of the more Asian cultures, where a more indirect approach is considered more polite, more appropriate. So, you know, somebody who comes in from, for example, China or India, maybe a little bit more indirect or a little bit more uh, polite in terms of their approach. And the, you know, the interviewer may view them as less assertive, which isn't necessarily accurate. It's being more respectful, yes. at least culturally. So yes. for someone who's coming to the United States from a different culture, what do they want into and how do they start overcoming? Yeah, so, you know, I think that at, at its most basic level, it, it's first of all about work authorization. And I am not an attorney, so, you know, I make no claims about that. But um, in terms of being able to work in the United States, if you're not a citizen, you know, where you're going to fill out the I-9 form when you start work. I mean, anybody that comes to the U.S. has to have either, a, you know, an appropriate work visa, which has all of its own restrictions, depending on the category, and then uh, timelines and dates. So, you know, getting that can be complicated. Uh, the government hasn't made it easy over the past several years to get that work authorization, even for spouses of people that have that authorization. So, you know, the very first step is, um, you know, is getting that work authorization lined up, whether it's a permanent residency, whether it's a temporary visa. But then, you know, the next piece is once you've got those in place, and by the way, I mean, I'm not giving it all that much time, but I mean, that's a long involved and expensive process. But once that's done, um, you know, it's all about preparing for the job search having a resume that's going to be appropriate for the job market, maybe a LinkedIn profile as well that's going to uh, reflect well with employers in the U.S. And as Scott said, we're not attorneys. We're not going to play one uh, on this show, but you already have one if you're here, I'm sure. So we're going to move past that onto the yes. how do you actually find work? So I assume for many, it's going to be about applying for jobs rather than networking into jobs. Am I, am I correct about that? Because I don't profess to have you know, intimate knowledge of this. Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstance, right? So if you are, you know, if you're coming here to the United States, and let's say you're coming from somebody, you know, from someplace that's it's very remote, you know, um, you know, just give you an example. I'll just say somebody's coming from, for example, Ecuador or Bolivia, where there's not a huge network in the United States. There is some, but it's it's really not all that much. Yeah, you're going to be spending more of your time applying for jobs uh, online. Um, you know, and, and making those applications, um, you know, but, but, you know, also keep in mind that we're, we're much more in a global environment these days. So, you know, a lot of people have come from other countries, um, you know, maybe to come to the United States and do a degree, and maybe they went back to their other country. So, you know, if somebody came to the United States, and maybe they went to New York University, got their undergraduate, went back to 
uh, Columbia, for example. They might have a network that they can actually tap into in terms of an alumni association. But, um, you know, it's, it's really, look, to be very truthful, uh, folks that are coming here from internationally are going to have to work a little bit harder to do that, to find what's the network resources available, doing the applications online, but also, you know, being more aggressive in terms of networking through people maybe you don't know on LinkedIn to see who you can find at a, at a certain organization to, to make an introduction. So just from that answer, what I'm hearing is LinkedIn is an incredibly valuable resource for those who've come to the United States because they're able to connect with people from their country of origin uh, and uh, ask them for advice. Uh, yes. Learn yes. from their experiences so it's less trial and error. And it it will be a trial, folks. Let's not kid ourselves. It will. And and I'm a huge fan of informational interviews. You know, the concept where you're asking people for advice. You're not necessarily asking them for a job. It's it's really a way of of networking uh, with that with somebody you don't even know necessarily. But if you can find somebody that may be sympathetic, um, you know. And I'm of the opinion. I mean, you know, my personal opinion, Jeff, is that people generally do want to help. You know, I think overall, I think if you ask 10 people, seven or eight of them are going to say, sure, let me see what I can do. And if you can find somebody um, who maybe has gone through the same cultural or international hurdles that you've gone through, um, you know, and ask them, as you say, for their advice in terms of how they navigated the job market, what advice do they have? Um, you know, it can definitely make a very positive uh, impression and a positive impact on your job search. And if you were messaging them through LinkedIn, and folks, I'll just simply say, not everyone's going to get back to you, and not everyone's going to get back to you in a timely way. True. But if you were sending a message to someone on LinkedIn, what might you request of this person who doesn't know you? Great question. I think I would start with, you know, I'd like to introduce myself you know, my name is so-and-so, explain a little bit about your situation. And then when it comes to the ask, the ask is really, I was hoping you could spare a few minutes of your time to share with me your experiences coming to the United States and looking at the job market here, um, you know, any guidance that you may have. And by the way, you know, make sure that it's clear that you're grateful for their time. Hey, if I can bring you a cup of your favorite coffee from Starbucks to, to talk about it while we meet, all the better. Um, but really, it's, it's all about asking people to share about knowledge that they have. And of course, everybody has their own experience. And, and I think if you can ask about that, but I think the important thing is when you're doing that, it's, it's the one thing you don't ask is you don't ask them for a job opportunity. You don't ask them for a job interview. You know, you want to take that pressure away from them. You're, help, you're, you're basically building an ally. So, you know, if you're, the more you put on them, the more they're going to uh, feel that it's not going to be a good investment on their time. But if they feel like it's a good reciprocal relationship and something they can help you with, they're going to. And I'm going to ask you the question that I know I was asked many times. Sure. Why would they want to do that? Um, generally speaking, I think people are good. I think that people generally do want to help, but I think also there's another motive there too. I think that people have a sense of community. Um, you know, I, there's a reason why when people come here, they tend to, you know, live in communities with people that understand where they come from. And I think if they can help somebody who shares a cultural background or shares a, you know, a geographical background or at least some sort of connection, 
um, they can do that. And the truth of the matter is that it also can turn into job opportunities. If you happen to reach somebody, uh, I'll use the example of Columbia. You know, you have somebody who came from Columbia, built a business here in the United States, um, or has gone into a leadership role. You know what, if you meet with them and, and it's clear that you can articulate that you understand, you know, as a candidate, the issues that they've had, that, you know, you understand their perspective, they probably will understand that maybe you could be a good fit for either themselves or for somebody that they refer you to or another situation, or at least they can at least, you know, feel better that they've at least set you right if you're coming in with them with the wrong perspective. Gotcha. So we're, we've started to cover networking uh, for someone from outside the U.S., and resumes, I assume, are different as well. Uh, they are. In some cultures, it's CV. And yeah. curriculum vitae is, is the appropriate approach, but a resume is what we do here. Uh, how are the, the documents different? Uh, you know what? It varies country to country. And, and this is where it gets a little complicated. I, you know, about, um, you know, before I went into the resume writing business, I was a recruiter for a company called Starboard Cruise Services, LVMH. It was an LVMH company. And what we did is we ran retail shops on cruise ships. And, you know, we used to find people, the people that we would find to manage these would come internationally. These were folks that would come from England or from Romania or all these other markets. And, you know, what you would see is a couple of things. First of all, resumes in other countries tend to be a little less accomplishments driven than a U.S. resume. We tend to be, as I said, very direct. We, we tend to be very straightforward. And, you know, it's part of our nature to be a little, you know, a little bit braggy, right? That's just who we are. And, you know, as an American society, and I think there's an element of that. So, you know, an American resume tends to be very full of achievements. Here's what I did. Here were the metrics. Here's what, what resulted. And, you know, for example, I've worked with a lot of folks in England and England is not that way. When, you know, when you have folks from Britain, it tends to be just more of a job description. Here's what I did. Here's the duties that I have. And, you know, in the United States, that would be perceived as a relatively light resume. Um, also, you know, other things, other countries, people tend to put their pictures on the resume, depending on the, on the nation. Um, and in the U.S., that's a real no-no. You know, you don't want to do that. And, and, and why is that? Just so we can explain it to folks. Of course. Um, you know, I think what it boils down to is we want people to be evaluated for their merit as opposed for their appearance. And, you know, so if you've got uh, two resumes and one looks really fantastic, but the person is really not terribly attractive, and you've got the other resume where the background is not terror, not great, but the, you know, they've got a photo of somebody who really is very attractive, you know, that's not a good way to make a decision. In, in the United States, it's more merit-based. So they want to look at the resume, see what the achievements are. The other part is it is a discrimination question too. Um, you know, the older, you know, the older you are, you'll show up older on a picture on a resume. Um, you know, you want people to look at the resume for that reason. They want to, they want to look at it so that they can see that you've got the right background and it's not about your age, your religion, your personal appearance, anything like that. Um, but some countries it's very standard. Um, you know, there's other differences too, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, many countries, they put personal information, um, you know, so for example, um, 
you know, I've seen it in many countries, particularly like in the Middle East, you'll put your age, your marital status, um, you'll put, uh, you know, your family, what do they look like, your religion, I mean, all these types of details. That's not relevant. In fact, for in the United States, it's illegal for an employer to ask you about all these questions. So, um, you know, there's a variety of different things. And then, of course, there's other, man there's naming conventions. Here's just a cultural thing. This isn't a right or wrong. It's just cultural. So, for example, in the United States, our naming system is first name, last name, right? I'm Scott Singer. In, for example, in many of the Latin American markets, people have three, four, five names. So it's first name, then their father's last name, then their mother's last name, and then you may have some middle names that are in there as well. Um, you know, and when you get an American recruiter who's looking through the resume, they're going to be like, well, what do I call this person? What, you know, how do they wish to be addressed? So, and it does send a signal that maybe, you know, culturally, it's not attuned in terms of how people will evaluate the resume in the U.S. This is so good. Um, LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. How would someone express LinkedIn as you know, the newly arrived individual? Uh, they're changing, of course, to the current location that they're in. Uh, so they're no longer in, I'm going to pick a different country, Italy. Right. Now in the United States. Uh, so you're changing the location. Language, of course, has to change because you're not going to have it in Italian. No one will, well, LinkedIn will have the conversion option because they'll yep. recognize from your IP address that you're in the U.S. But searching for recruiters has to be in their language for them to be able to understand. So you've yeah. got to have your resume and your LinkedIn profile translated. What other sorts of things should someone be aware of when yeah. they're making this move? That's a great question. And um, first of all, yes, you can have a LinkedIn profile in two different languages. That is an option. Um, and in a market, so for example, I live in South Florida, you know, the Miami market. And, you know, down where we are, it actually is a benefit to have profiles in two languages because South Florida is known as the Latin American hub. So com companies will come, they'll have their headquarters there, you know, and for to do business, it's not a bad practice to do that, to have it in two languages. Um, but, you know, I think other things that you want to think about are, first of all, if you can amp up some of the achievements in terms of the LinkedIn, um, you know, make sure that you have some of those. But I think there's other things, too. First of all, the summary. You know, you get 2,600 characters at the very beginning of your profile to talk about who you are and, and what you do and where you come from uh, professionally. And I think I would encourage people to use that profile to very clearly articulate um, I am here in the United States, you know, I am located here in the United States, I hold current work authorization, um, and you want to make sure that it's, it's written in such a way that it sounds like a native speaker, not necessarily somebody that's born in the United States, but somebody at least that it's, it's middle of the road American English or British English, depending on where you are, um, that it has a cadence and it comes across that way. So, um, you know, but again, the summary is important because it's really the, you know, after the picture and the headline, the, you know, the 220 characters after your name, that's the first thing people read and that's what they determine if they're going to keep reading. So the more that you can use that space to clearly get over people's objections, you know, whether it's work authorization, language or, or otherwise, uh, location, the better. That's what it's going to be an effective way to use LinkedIn. I'll add in one more, and that is make it easy for people to reach out to you by putting yes. your email address in the summary. 
so that they don't have to spend an email on reaching out to you. Um, yes. And you don't have to put the at sign if you're concerned about spammers getting in touch with you. Make it harder for them by using the word at in parenthesis. Spammers are going to find it and translate it anyway, but make it easy for people to contact you so that they want to reach out to you. It's not going to cost them anything to reach out to you. Exactly. Exactly. The easier you can make it, the better. Um, you know, and there's other things too. I mean, I think it's, it's you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't think about is LinkedIn groups. You know, there's, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar with it, because honestly, most people don't even go there anymore. The groups are, you know, you, there's, there's tons of uh, pages where you can find people with common interests, common backgrounds. Um, you know, if you happen to, you know, there's groups for expatriates, you know, people that have moved from one country to another. There are groups for universities that you may have attended, um, you know, professional disciplines, you know, maybe you have a CPA. That's another thing too, by the way. So for example, if you've, um, you know, if you come to the United States and let's say you're an accountant and you've gotten the equivalent of a CPA you know, the certified professional accountant in your country. It may not have the same name. Make sure in your LinkedIn that you put somewhere in parentheses CPA equivalent so that it has that search terminology when a recruiter is looking through there as well. And I want to repeat that one. Make sure you have the U.S. acronym in parentheses because a recruiter searching may not recognize the charter accountant, to use the English example. They yes. want to see CPA. They may not think of charter accountant as a search term. They're going to think of CPA. So you want to be found in that way by using that CPA equivalent. Absolutely. There's one other thing too. I, you know, oh, so just to finish on that groups piece, um, you know, you certainly want to make sure that you, uh, you know, that you can you maximize that, reach out to people, let them know you're available. There may be people that may be willing, you know, you can put up a request. Hey, anybody have experience where I've been that might be able to offer a, you know, sympathetic ear? Um, you know, that's a great thing. One of the other things to, to think about too, this is something that a lot of people don't think about. Um, degrees, you know, college degrees are not necessarily equivalent. So to give you an example, uh, one of the big degrees that you get in Latin America is called the licentiate. Um, and the licentiate is basically, it's a five-year degree, which, you know, in the United States, it might be a bachelor's, might be a combined bachelor's, master's. It doesn't, it isn't really clear. Um, so one of the things that's, that's money well spent is going to a, um, it's an education verification firm where what they do is they validate, basically, they'll sit there with a chart and they'll look through the curriculum and they will basically go through and validate that your degree equivalents cover the same as, for example, a bachelor of arts in the United States from an accredited university. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of little factors and a lot of little obstacles. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you've gone through five years of college, you probably should get credit for that. But it's it is what it is. I mean, you're going to have you know you're going to have employers that are going to ask to validate that as well. And it's part of the lack of understanding in the U.S. of foreign cultures, and thus the difference is that if you can address and educate, will benefit you. But there's also some very real differences too. So to give you an example, um, you know, in many Latin American countries, you can become an attorney with an undergraduate degree. 
a four-year degree and you will become a full-fledged attorney. In the United States, you have to get a bachelor's degree and then you go to three years of law school. So it's not necessarily as in-depth or as, 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 uh, as correlating as, as, you know, as it might be. So in many of those cases, for example, an attorney that comes to the United States from Venezuela or Colombia might have to go back and get a, uh, you know, a supplemental degree, an LLM degree to be able to practice in the United States. And I would want them to do that because the fact of the matter is it's a different law. It is. You got to learn what it is you're coming into. Uh, And let's move on to interviews. Of course. This is the biggie for so many. Um, How are interviews different? Yeah, I think in terms of the interviews, I think the the primary difference is, um, number one, is you're going to get in other countries, you may get asked a lot of very personal questions. Here, that's not appropriate. Uh, don't get me wrong. There are some people that don't know what they're doing or deliberately not follow the rules and ask you a lot of personal things, but that's the primary difference. Um, so, you know, people come here, they're naive. They don't quite understand what they can and cannot be asked. You know, marital status, religion, um, you know, age, age. Uh, race, ethnicity, what language do you speak at home? Are you pregnant? I mean, there's just so many things that fall under employment law here. Um, but I think the other thing is it's, it's also a style issue in terms of the interview process as well. So, you know, we talked a little bit about this, that we, you know, the American approach is a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more audacious. Um, you know, a lot of people who come for, many, for an interview might be shocked at the very simple question of tell me about yourself. You know, that a lot of employers start an interview that way, you know, and it's an icebreaker. It's a good question for that. And, um, you know, you might get the, the candidate that will come in and start sharing. Okay, well, here's my, you know, here's where I was born. Here's my family. Here's who my parents were. Here's how many kids I have. Here's the church I go to. That's not what they're looking for. You know, when, when people, when an employer here in the U.S. is asking, tell me about yourself, the question a candidate should hear is, why should I hire you? That's why they're really having this conversation. So, you know, it's, it's aligning that a little bit. The other part of it is, um, you know, once they start getting into the questions themselves, it's developing a level of comfort with, um, you know, with highlighting your achievements, you know, hey, while I was here, here's some things I was able to change. Here's the numbers I was able to, I was able to make, um, you know, things like that. That's going to be a primary difference. And folks, I'll, I'll give you one cue on answering. Tell me about yourself. Keep your answer to no more than one minute and 15 seconds because people stop listening in the United States once you start going over that amount of time. So where you can make your answer concise that addresses the things that the hiring manager or the human resources person cares about in evaluating and assessing you or you can connect the dots for them where they say, we want this and you're telling them I've done this here that's what they're trying to really find out from you. Not everything about your life story and, and what high school you went to. Yeah. And then of course the other real shock they're going to get is, is behavioral interviews. You know, the, the tell me about a time when you had a situation that, you know, and these can be really tough questions, you know, the, the, you know, tell me about a time when you and your manager didn't agree. Tell me about a time when you had an impossible deadline, you know, and being prepared for those types of questions is brutal. It is a tough, tough thing to get through. It's a cultural difference. 
again, trying to keep the audience engaged and tell a story, I'll encourage you folks, prepare in advance based upon the job description. You can see what they're looking for. Have three stories prepared that illustrate what you've done previously that relates to what they're looking for. And if it follows a format of situation or task, action, result, and the result includes a metric of money saved, money earned, percentage improvement over what was there previously, you're connecting the dots for them so that they get a handle on what you've done in your country of origin and how it translates for the U.S. market. Is that how you would explain it to folks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and the other thing is, too, that also one thing I would say is that for an international person is don't assume that the person you're speaking to, if you're an international candidate coming to the U.S., don't assume that the interviewer understands culturally what you've been through. Let me give you an example. Argentina. Um, Argentina in the early 2000s went through a massive economic upheaval and their, their, their currency devalued by 70, 80%. Basically, you know, people that were upper middle class overnight had been pushed to, you know, to basically hand to mouth in terms of the way they've been able to do it. Um, you know, very dynamic economic environment, very protectionist government, you know, so, you know, a lot of times when telling stories, ah, coffee time, when a lot of times when telling those stories, it, it can help giving a little bit of context. So, you know, I was able, you know, in 2003, I was able to achieve, you know, a 500% increase in sales. Well, okay, that's great. Versus in 2003, we had companies that were absolutely illiquid. They had no money. There was an economic crisis. And yet I was able to work with them to you know, redesign their international business so that they were able to get funding from their parent companies and we were able to increase revenues by 500%. It's a different story, you know, once you're giving the context of that. And the beautiful thing about telling a story like that is it shows that you're able to deal with, um, you know, from a competency standpoint, able to deal with ambiguity, able to deal with dynamic work environments and business environments. These are competencies that regardless of the country an employer is going to look for. You betcha. What haven't we covered yet that we really should in helping the international job hunter navigate the U.S. system? Yes, I think the last piece to really cover here is compensation. And, um, you know, it's important to know that the way work pay works in every country is different. And, you know, the, the way that people, you know, in some countries, it's per diem, some countries like the U.S., you know, it's hourly or salaried. Um, you know, in Italy, for example, they do it based on a 54, I think a 54 or 58 week year. You know, it's like everybody gets a free month of salary, but that devaluates, devalues some of the salary. So, you know, I would encourage, um, you know, you might get an employer that might be willing to or interested in taking advantage of a situation. If you, if you don't know what you're worth in the market, they, you know, it's harder for you to negotiate. So, you know, spend some time on a, on a website like PayScale, understand where your skills fit in, in terms of the local job market, um, in terms of a compensation standpoint, but also understand exactly how a paycheck looks. You know, in the United States, it can be sad 
salary, it can be benefits. You know, health insurance is something that employers tend to put in part as part of their pay package. You know, how much are you going to pay for that benefit? Um, your insurance, life, you know, life insurance, um, educational tuition reimbursement. There's a lot of different pieces. It's very much worthwhile for you to educate yourself on how the pay should look. And I'll add in bonus potential, what they've paid in the way of bonus previously, and this thing called profit sharing. So there's lots of little differences that exist from one country to another. Scott is absolutely right. You got to get educated. And then there's just a negotiation phase. You know, yeah. When the offer is being made and you want to help them find a reason to increase it, when they're being a little bit um, strident. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, and salary negotiation is difficult for everybody. And if you don't understand some of the nuances in terms of language and how people are communicating and how they're negotiating, you know, from a cultural perspective, it can make things much more difficult. Um, you know, if you're looking to, uh, you know, I think the best thing you can do is that if you're looking to negotiate, get an offer, you realize that it's not what you think it should be. Um, and you understand that there's room to negotiate there, you know, a lot of employers are about a win-win. Okay. You know, give them something for them to close the deal for them to increase the salary. Um, you know, whether it's your willingness to basically, you know, quit negotiating and sign this offer immediately if we can get to dollar figure X. But, um, you know, maybe it's vacation time. I don't know. There's different factors. You need to understand that. But the better you understand it, the better you can negotiate it. And folks, I'll mention to you, if you go to jobsearchtv.com, I have a playlist there on salary negotiation, a lot of videos there uh, that will help you go there proactively and understand the system so that when it gets to the offer phase, you're not scrambling to catch up. You're ready for it. One video there in particular uh, you might find helpful is the easiest way to negotiate a higher salary for yourself. Uh, it's about 10 minutes long. It's one of the first videos I ever did for YouTube. And it gives a very basic way of negotiating in the U.S. market that will be easy to execute, that should be able to get you improve the offer, especially if you're interviewing with a firm that has a little bit of pity on the fact that you're an international uh, hire. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thank you. This has been terrific. And again, folks, no one covers this material. Scott's done a great job. How can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Thank you. I appreciate it. If you're interested in learning more about Insider Career Strategies, you can visit us at www.insidercs.com or you can email me at scott.singer at insidercs.com. So that's today's show. I hope you found it helpful. And if you did, here are a few things I can do to help you with your job search beyond simply being your coach. First of all, I've got a new book out called The Right Answers to Tough Interview Questions. It is like a cookbook with answers to tons of interview questions that you're going to be asked on interviews. And if you pair it up with my other new book, The Ultimate Job Interview Framework, they are a, a terrific pair of books to help you with interviewing. In addition, a new service where you can practice mock interviews. If you go to the Big Game Hunter 
us forward slash mock. I've got a service there, very inexpensive, like $99, where we have mock interviews set up. I'm going to be adding more to it very soon, but you can record your answers to them and then I can critique them and help you perform better on them. You probably have noticed my show notes are pretty thorough with products and services that can help you with your search and connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash the big game hunter. Lastly, my website has a ton of great information. That's thebiggamehunter.us. Now, if you're not ready to go there and go through the blog, put the address in your phone, thebiggamehunter.us, Jeff Altman. So this way, when you're ready to go, you have a way of getting back to my website. Hope you have a terrific day. And most importantly, be great. (laughs) 